You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. As I've explained in previous shows, the main reason for energy transition is to address climate change. Now, there are a lot of other reasons for energy transition, to be sure, because it helps to bring electricity to those who simply lack it, which is a matter of simple human equity and decency, because it helps to stop the countless ways in which our traditional energy sources have caused environmental damage, because it leads to a cleaner and kinder future in which the wealth it generates is distributed and shared in a more equitable way because it hopefully leaves to future generations a human society that is more sustainable than the one we have today, which largely relies on consuming finite resources. But the main reason is climate change, and that's a subject that we haven't really tackled in depth yet, and I'll tell you why. First, the science on climate change is enormously complex. It's hard to understand because understanding it requires a familiarity with knowledge that only scientists in that domain ever learn, the stuff that isn't taught in school. Most people, for example, couldn't even tell you what the troposphere is. Want to see somebody's eyes glaze over and their brain check out from a conversation? Explain some climate science to them. Second, because energy transition challenges the energy incumbency, it risks stranding trillions of dollars worth of assets. Those who hold those assets do not intend to go down without a fight. And fight they have, enough to confuse and distract the public and turn climate change into a partisan political issue, which it should not be. Climate change is a threat that every human on Earth faces. But unfortunately, the battle against it must be fought in the domain of politics because it is there where policy is formed, that the fate of those trillions of dollars worth of existing assets and the trillions of dollars worth of assets yet to be built will be decided. And so, finally, I have concluded that the Energy Transition Show must begin to grapple with climate change, both with the science of it and the politics of it. And because it is such an enormously complex subject, I expect that it will take many episodes over the coming years to address it properly. So consider this just one of a many-part mini-series of the Energy Transition Show. But instead of just diving straight into the science, I want to start by looking at the debate over climate change, the way that the sausage grinder of policy is treating it today, and what we might expect from that debate in the era of Trump. To help us navigate this minefield of policy debates, we have with us today Joseph Mikett, the Director of Climate Science at the Niskanen Center, a libertarian 501c3 think tank devoted to climate change policy and based in Washington, D.C. He's an expert on climate change, the global carbon cycle, and risk and uncertainty analysis for decision making, and previously worked on climate change policy as a congressional science fellow supported by the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the American Geoscience Institute. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Joseph, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you for having me. 
So let's start by hashing through some of the common arguments made against climate change just to get those out of the way kind of quickly. And then we can talk about what's really happening and, and what it means for the future. Yeah, sure. So one of the most memorable bits of climate science, I think, for the layman is the hockey stick graph showing global temperatures warming sharply throughout the 20th century after a long period of being pretty flat. And that graph, I think, was first produced by Michael Mann in 1994 and then later popularized by Al Gore in his film An Inconvenient Truth. So of all the talking points that have been batted around in the climate debate, the hockey stick graph is probably the most abused. So what do you think the deal is with that? I, I don't know if I'm going to get all the, the dates right on the history of when things came out. I think you're right to say that the hockey stick shows this kind of hinge point finding in climate science. You've got this idea that humans are unleashing a bunch of CO2 to the atmosphere. We know that that is a greenhouse gas. We know that that should have a warming effect of some type. But it's not until the sort of late 20th century that we start realizing this warming, think that it's above the noise or the variability that we'd randomly expect. And then this paper comes out that says, hey, this is probably the warmest the Earth's been for at least the last thousand years there's sort of a philosophical or rhetorical strength to that finding as well as a scientific one. I think that's why it probably drew a lot of controversy. Behind that controversy, you know, they're, they're trying to do something hard, right? We don't have thermometer measurements of temperature that go back a thousand years. So you have to use these things called proxies, tree ring data, other geochemical indicators of what temperature was. And that involves a lot of analysis and judgment to get to a temperature estimate. So there's some scientific controversy that sort of gets warped or, or misinterpreted or a debate that might play out in scientific journals sort of gets out into the public where it becomes a little bit harder to understand, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I think the reason why it became a big public issue is that it kind of fundamentally changes the conversation around are humans having a noticeable and particular impact on the climate? Right. I mean, and I guess the most offsided recent argument against the hockey stick is that the temperature data showed a so-called pause or hiatus in the warming trends, which was not predicted by the climate models, in which the Earth's warming slowed down or stopped after 1998. And yet, U.S. scientists have just declared 2016 the hottest year on record, surpassing the previous record set in 2015, which in itself beat the record set in 2014. So clearly, we are in a recent warming trend here. So what's the reality here? Did the hiatus in warming even happen, or is it just over, or what is the latest science telling us about that? <laughs> I think this is another place where sort of the debate you hear in public is pretty different from what's going on in the scientific literature. But you're again addressing this sort of hinge point idea in the message of climate science, right? The first with the hockey stick was, is this unprecedented? And the second is what we're dealing with now with the pause is, is this going to continue apace, right? You know, we, we continue to base the atmosphere in CO2. And are the messages of climate science really going to play out? So you're right to point out that 2016 was just the hottest year. Jim Hansen reports, I think, 1.2 ish degrees C over pre-industrial. That, that number can vary based on what you choose to define pre-industrial. That's one data set, but all of the service data sets are actually showing this as the hottest year on record. It's also the hottest year on record in, in satellite data sets. 
And, you know, if you look between them, basically how big the record was depends on how much of the Arctic they show because the Arctic was crazy, crazy hot. Yeah. If you, there wasn't even any ice formation, as I recall, where it normally would form during the winter months. Certainly a lot less. Yeah. You've seen some scary graphs going around on Twitter of ice extent being a lot less than normal. Right. And it, you have a bunch of years, and they'll show ice going down and up when you would expect it to melt in the summer and grow in the winter. And then it's like a toddler has taken a marker and just like attempted to trace half that line and then has gone completely off. Mm. You always got to be careful looking at one year. We had a big El Nino that started this year off. You always want to be careful looking at one year and saying like, oh, here comes the end of the world. But this is certainly matching our expectation of what should happen, especially that the Arctic is experiencing a lot more warmth than we're seeing globally, right? But what's the deal with this hiatus story that climate skeptics have been pushing? Well, if you include the 2016 data, it's not clear to me that there is much pause or hiatus, meaning that the warming trend since 1998 doesn't look particularly different from the warming trend over the last few decades. So was this hiatus just sort of a, a, a temporary artifact in the data between like 98 and 2013 or something of that sort? Yeah, I think there's a strong case that there was something there. And particularly, there's a strong case that if you look at what our climate models predicted would have happened post-1998 to today, that the world showed less warming, at least for much of the 2000s and early 2010s. So that's like probably a real thing. And it's important, I think, to distinguish between a pause where temperature increases stop. I think that that concept has been thoroughly blown out of the water, but from a slowdown, right? That you know, you, you sort of expect as CO2 piles up in the atmosphere from continued emissions, that warming will occur along some track. And at least for a period of a decade, decade and a half, that appears to have not happened. And that's a really interesting scientific question, like, you know, why that is. So there's still a little bit of examination going on and some forensics as to why that may have departed from climate model expectation. But the idea that the greenhouse effect has somehow stalled out or that warming isn't continuing is really wrong. I seem to recall some recent stories suggesting that, for one thing, the hiatus might have been just an artifact of the data in the sense that there was some data that showed that pause that had not been corrected and needed to be corrected for various factors. And then the other angle of the story being that that the warming that the models expected didn't happen in the atmosphere, but instead happened in the oceans, that the ocean wound up absorbing the heat that the climate models predicted. Sure. Does that sound right? Yeah, I mean, there, so there's two kind of concepts there, right? The first is, is the global temperature record that we assemble, and I'm happy to talk about how we assemble those, truly reflective of the global temperature that was, and there is a growing body of evidence, two really big papers, one from 2015 and one just released at the end of last year, that the one in 2015 stirred a bunch of public controversy saying, well, we might have, if we change the way that we look at the ocean temperature and trends in ocean temperature, which you're kind of mashing together or compositing a few different kinds of data to assess a the trend in ocean temperature. If we fix what we think are mistakes in that process, we end up with a faster rise in global temperature. And that means that this pause is sort of, could be an artifact, at least in part, 
of the way we process our data, right? And that stirred this like big controversy with the House Science Committee going after the authors and claiming that this was finding was released at coincidentally with the president's climate action plan and then the run-up to the Paris Climate Accords to kind of cover up the fact that warming wasn't going as climate models predicted. And then this paper comes out last month. It turns out that they've actually done this analysis correctly and the case for a pause in this one particular surface data set is undercut and the other data sets should probably be making similar adjustments. Hmm. So skeptics also emphasize the uncertainty around climate science, pointing out that the fossil record actually shows the Earth's climate has always been changing and that it's hard for us to judge changes that happen over centuries or even millions of years from the perspective of just a couple of hundred years or so of recent data. So what makes the present warming significant? Well, we know why it's happening, right? Like, it's kind of easy to get hung up on these things that we've been talking about, the hockey stick and the idea that this is unprecedented warming or kind of comparisons of climate models to data. But there's a fundamental story here that is relatively easy to understand and I think has become hardened by repeated investigation and failure to refute it. That is, we're loading the atmosphere with carbon dioxide. That's having a warming effect. Warming is piling into the ocean. Surface temperatures are going up and there is no expectation that that's going to stop. Instead, we have every reason to believe that it's going to continue until we halt greenhouse gas emissions. And the after effects are going to ring out for millennia because it takes a long time to warm up the ocean when there is a radiative imbalance. That's to say that there's more energy coming down upon the earth than is able to leave it. Then it takes a long time for the ocean to capture that heat and fully realize the temperature changes. It takes a long time to melt ice sheets, which both of those things give you sea level rise. So kind of weather warming over this century is two, three, or four degrees. And there's uncertainty in that, both because we can't predict what human decisions are going to be, and there is a range of possible warmings for any given scenario of emissions kind of uncertainty in the climate system itself, this is a total step change in planetary history. And, you know, it's one that is equally large to the massive changes that we've seen in Earth history that you read about in the transitions between the ice ages and things like that. So I think that's why it's significant. Like, we know why it's happening. We've got a strong body of evidence that it is human activity, and we have no reason to expect that this is going to stop unless human emissions are reduced significantly. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. Annual subscriptions start at just $60 a year, and monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition.
And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item one. Analysts at HSBC, a bank, published a report back in September that only recently came to my attention, in which they forecast a return to a balanced oil market later this year. They discussed extensively the decline rates of mature fields and see a significant risk that the past two and a half years of starving the sector of investment will likely give rise to a situation in which the global spare capacity is constrained and the Brent benchmark climbs back to the $75 barrel vicinity. I thought it was one of the most comprehensive reports on oil I'd seen in years, and that it was also extraordinary for being very clearly written without the usual obfuscatory bank analyst jargon, and I would recommend it very highly for anyone who wants to gain a deeper understanding of the important factors and trends in the global oil trade. It's a whole graduate class on oil in one package, with a huge amount of very nicely presented data. Notably, the authors do not anticipate that the continuing evolution of fracking in the tight oil sector will materially change their outlook, but I am told that they will have a similarly detailed report on tight oil coming out sometime in the first half of this year. See the link in the show notes for that report. Item 2. For a very different outlook on the future of oil. Those who listen to episode 33 on the EIA's forecast for fracking will be interested to know that the EIA finally published its assumptions for the AEO. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.